Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians. If you have looked in your worship guide, you will notice that the title for today's sermon is Lasting Impressions. I think we all know what I mean by that phrase, Lasting Impressions. There are certain things we experience or see in our lifetime that deeply influence us, and they leave a lasting mark, a lasting impression. It might be people, plenty of people, have made a mark on my life. I think back on my childhood. I think back in particular on my parents' habit, custom of inviting missionaries into the home, innumerable missionaries over the years. Often had to give up my room so that a missionary couple could sleep in it, and I could rhyme off names and places of missionaries and the deep, deep impact that had upon me. It might very well be people, a lasting impression. Uh, It happens with places, doesn't it? Things we've seen. Um, The pyramids of Egypt, I don't know, the Great Wall of China, uh, the Grand Canyon, big rocks, (laughs) just saying, it could be, (laughs) for some, I'm sure, big rocks, Uh, they make a lasting, deep impression, and it could be events, right? Right? Weddings, births, adoption. It could be world events, the first walk on the moon. That was quite something for those of you who remember. Assassination of President Kennedy, 9-11. Events upon events that leave a mark. They influence us, affect us deeply, and leave a lasting impression. My prayer this past week as I prepared for today was simply that as we bid farewell to the book of Galatians, it would leave a lasting impression. I don't expect we'll remember everything. I certainly won't remember everything. But I do pray, I trust there are certain things that have arrested our attention sunk deep within, embraced us, and will be made due time manifest in our lives. Lasting impressions. Uh, You'll recall if you've been here and you have accompanied this series right from the beginning, back in June of 2017, uh, we noted that Paul went on that first missionary journey and he entered what is known today as Turkey, then as Asia Minor, and a specific region right in the middle of Asia Minor, known as Galatia. And he preached the gospel, proclaimed the good news of salvation. Men and women, boys and girls were converted, brought to the faith. And he established a number of local churches, appointed elders over those churches. And then he went on his way, returned back home to Antioch. And at some point after that trip, Uh, Problems arose among those churches, within those churches of Galatia. We don't know exactly when, but we do know that troublemakers infiltrated those churches. 
And from reading Paul's epistle to the Galatians, it's made pretty evident that they are lodging two great complaints. I think we can put it that way. Two great complaints or objections, perhaps is a better word. Objections aimed at the Apostle Paul. The first objection is this. Paul isn't a real apostle. He might be a preacher. He might be a a very good preacher. But he is not an apostle. He was not part of the original band of 12. And he is most certainly not apostle on par with James and John and Peter. Therefore, we should take what he says with a pinch of salt. He does not speak authoritatively. That's the first objection. The second objection is this. Paul doesn't preach the full gospel. He's got a lot of things right. He says a lot of good things, but he is not proclaiming the fullness of the gospel. He received the gospel from Peter and James and John and the real apostles. And sadly, Paul has corrupted what he heard from them. And Paul is teaching you that to arrive at a right standing in the sight of God, that all you must do is believe in the Lord Jesus. That the Lord Jesus paid the penalty for your sins upon Calvary's cross. That the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment, the completion of the law. And that the old covenant is now obsolete because it comes to its fruition in Christ. And all you need to do is believe in him, thereby becoming one with him to be accepted by God. Not quite, they're saying. No, that Mosaic covenant, that old covenant still stands. And if you really want to be a Christian, you see, this is what Paul has messed up. This is what Paul, somewhere between the apostles and him, something didn't happen. They got their wires crossed. Uh, He is saying, no, the Mosaic covenant is gone. It most certainly is not gone. And if you want to be a Christian, you need to be circumcised. If you want to be a Christian, you need to observe the dietary laws. If you want to be a Christian, you need to start observing all of those laws governing cleansing and the rituals and the days and the feasts and everything else that was part of that covenant. Paul knows there's problems in the churches of Galatia. Somehow, I don't know, maybe by way of letter, or perhaps someone has visited him. Word has got back to him. Paul, do you have any idea what's going on in those churches you planted? Paul, in such a short period of time, these wolves disguised in sheep's clothing have entered him, and they are leading these believers, at least professing believers, astray. And so Paul takes his reed pen in hand, so to speak, and he jots this letter to the churches of Galatia. And when you read it from beginning to end, you are most certainly, we are most certainly left with the impression that Paul is simply trying to accomplish two things. There they are. He is defending what? The authority of his ministry. I am an apostle. I am an apostle just like Peter. And not only that, he defends the accuracy of his message. I did not receive it from the other apostles. I received it by way of direct revelation from God himself. And you understand me that what I teach is precisely what the other apostles teach. He's on the defensive. He does go on the attack a little bit in the epistle. But by and large, his posture is defensive. As he defends, yes, 
the authority of his ministry, and the accuracy of his message. Next slide, Teresa. Just two slides this morning. And there's how he goes about doing it in this letter. You've seen that. Most of you have seen that two or three times. There is a salutation, a greeting, followed by a word of caution. I know what's going on there. I know you're in danger of leaving the gospel for another gospel, which really isn't a gospel. It's an aberration of the truth. And that constitutes his introduction. And then he just systematically unpacks the gospel. The gospel revealed how the Lord Jesus Christ himself had entrusted the gospel to Paul in chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 14. The gospel explained in just six succinct verses. Here's what we believe. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the rock, the bedrock of our salvation. And then the gospel defended. He then goes on the offensive and he demonstrates how these Jewish infiltrators have completely misunderstood the scriptures, completely misunderstood the Mosaic covenant and where it stands in God's great plan of redemptive history, that that covenant is gone. The new covenant, the new age, the new creation has been inaugurated. And the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrifices. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the dietary laws, the cleansing laws, everything else. It all points to, culminates in, and terminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you go back and live under that? It was a shadow. It's gone. Oh, he's on the offensive in these verses. And then he brings it to a conclusion. The gospel applied. Here's the difference the gospel makes in our lives. As those who have received the Holy Spirit, as those who've been baptized by Christ with the Spirit into the body of Christ, as those who live in the present age but really belong to the age to come, Here's the difference it will make in your life. You will walk by the Spirit so that you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And now he brings this plane in for a landing, right? Or does he? He teases us a little bit in the conclusion, the caution, verses 11 through 17, then the benediction in verse 18. We think we're coming in for a landing. He's just going to bring this bird down gently and pull it into the, you know, the terminal but no, it's almost like he revs up the engines again and takes off in this conclusion. Why? He wants to make a lasting impression. And that's my prayer this day, that we will get the impression that Paul seeks to make upon his readers, see the relevance of it, not just for these people to whom he wrote, but by the Holy Spirit, the relevance of these verses for us. Read along. Teresa, you can take that away. We are finished with the slides Please follow along now as I read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, 
but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Seven lasting impressions. Before we get to them, it's worth noting verse 11. It's interesting, if nothing else. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I assume that to this point, Paul has been dictating, speaking. A friend has been a colleague sitting there, a scribe, writing. And as Paul has worked his way through his explanation and defense and articulation of the gospel, he now kind of shuffles over to the table and sneaks up behind the scribe, plucks that reed pen out of his hand, leans over the table, and he now starts to write himself, his own hand. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. You get it, don't you? You write an email to someone, and you really want to make a point. You want to make sure they don't miss it. They really get it. What do you do? That sentence that you, you want, this sentence, this thought to catch their eye. You put all the letters in uppercase, don't you? And then you might even put it in bold. And if, uh, I don't know, you're, you're really, I don't know, zealous at the moment, you might even underline the thing and put a couple of emojis around it. You're sending this message. You're conveying something. Yes, this is an email or this is a text message or this is something I'm communicating to you. But of all that I've said, oh, get this. Please get this. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's got the reed pen in his hand. He is now writing with large letters. He wants to grab their attention and he wants them to understand, take to heart what he says in verses 12 through 18. Seven lasting impressions. And these are impressions that I pray we feel at Grace Community Church. Number one, first impression. The desire for approval is a threat to the gospel. The desire for approval is a threat to the gospel. Where do I get that from? You don't have to go far. Verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So we now know, we know there are problems in the churches of Galatia. We know some have infiltrated. We know there are Jews, perhaps professing Christians, who are saying, no, you need to go back and live under the old covenant. And they're causing such confusion, such disarray, such chaos. And we might ask ourselves, well, why would they do that? We know now why they do that. It is in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They know their Jewish countrymen are watching. They know how ballistic 
their Jewish countrymen are when it comes to circumcision and the observance of the law. And they know that now some in this church, Jews and Gentiles, are throwing off the law. They're associating with them. And now they are fearful that their Jewish countrymen might catch wind of it. They will become the object of persecution. And so they are trying to influence everyone else to conform to that covenant in order to win the approval of man. Do you get the lasting impression? It will serve you well, my friend, and it will serve me well, especially in the day in which we find ourselves. The desire for approval is a threat to the gospel. Mark my words. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but mark my words. In the coming years, coming months, coming years, we will be scandalized by the number of individuals, churches, denominations, and institutions which today identify themselves as evangelical, but which will cave on the issues of sexual orientation and gender identity because of an unwillingness to be stigmatized as narrow-minded bigots. We're going to be shocked. We will be shocked, my friends, in the coming years, the number of professing evangelicals today out of a desire for approval, wanting to still have a seat at the table, so to speak, in our society, who will compromise on these issues. Let's forget about out there, Grace Community Church. Let's think in terms of Grace Community Church. And let us be very clear, very clear, that when we as Christians, those of us who are Christians, followers of Christ, when we affirm that Christ died to atone for sinners, we are saying, mark my words, please note my words, we are saying that man is so radically depraved that God won't accept anything from him. The gospel is inherently offensive. We don't want to offend. We don't like to offend. We run from causing offense. As Christians, that puts us in a very unenviable position because the message we proclaim is by definition offensive. We are saying to people, God wants nothing from you. God will accept nothing from you. You have absolutely nothing you can bring to God. Absolutely nothing. No, he will only accept you through the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we stand firmly on scriptures. We stand firmly on the word of God as to what it articulates concerning the nature of man. And we remember that the Lord Jesus himself testified that the world hates me. The world hates me. Why? Because I testify that its works are evil. Evil through and through. Oh, I pray we've learned that as a church. I pray the epistle of Galatians leaves that lasting impression upon us, that desire for approval desire for man's acceptance, a desire for a position in society, a position in the world, again, a position at the table, so to speak, a desire to be accepted, a desire to be favored, a desire to be esteemed. 
that is a constant threat to the gospel. Here's the second lasting impression. The way of salvation based on human effort is sheer folly. A way of salvation based on human effort is sheer folly. 13th verse. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. And so even, just, just imagine here now, Paul, is, he's speaking to this church. He knows they're Jews and Gentiles, all professing Christians in these churches. And he realizes that some who are of Jewish origin, they're now saying, no, to really be Christians, we need to go back and live under the Mosaic law. You need to be circumcised. You should stop eating that. You need to start celebrating that day. You need to wash your hands here. You need to do, we need to start doing all these things. And Paul's point is what? Look, those who are circumcised, those who have put themselves under the law, here's the irony. They do not themselves keep the law. No one can. The law was never given as a ladder to heaven. God never gave the law and said, look, here's something you can do, should do, and if you do do, I'll save you. No, the law was given as a tutor. And that tutor was to teach what? Utter sinfulness. Man's inability to find his way to God. Man's complete inability to earn God's favor. And the law was designed to cultivate and create a hunger in man whereby he yearned for the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the promised Redeemer. Oh, but the irony, those who tell you, you need to go back and live under the law, they themselves don't keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Oh, I pray we have learned it. A way of salvation based on human effort is sheer falling. The number one challenge. You might, you might challenge me on this later, and that's fine. But I firmly believe the number one challenge to the Christian faith has been is and will continue to be always the nature of man. How do we understand man? Because the default position of man is what? It is semi-Pelagian, if not Pelagian. What do I mean by that? That the default position of man is that we are inherently good. If we're not totally inherently good, the glass is at least half full. We're pretty good. Yes, okay, I've done some bad stuff. Well, praise God, Jesus died for my bad stuff upon the cross. But the rest of me is pretty, pretty good. And the greatest threat to the church since its inception to the present day, and it will continue to be, is this notion, nagging notion in the back of professing believers' minds, and it is so difficult to rid ourselves of it, that there is something in me, something in me, a reason for which God has been merciful to me. There is something I have done there is something I have refrained from doing. There is something meritorious, although I might not use that word, in me, uh, about me, over me, through me, under me. And in the final analysis, this is why I am saved. My friends, why are we saved as Christians? Why am I saved? I will say to you, okay, I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And a perfectly acceptable answer to the question, why am I saved, is because I believe. I have no problem with that answer. 
except it leads to another question. Why did you believe? If your answer to that isn't God's sovereign grace, we've got a problem. We've got a huge problem because how do you account for your faith? Where did it come from? From where did it originate? Your goodness? You really think that? Oh, my friend, I am a Christian for one, one reason alone. God's sovereign grace. From beginning to end, start to finish. Oh, this idea, though, that a way of salvation is ultimately based on me. Something I've done. Oh, it nags the church. It has done for centuries, and it will continue to do so. I pray, therefore, that Paul's letter to the Galatians has left a lasting impression. The way of salvation based on human effort is sheer folly. Here's the third lasting impression. Whatever you boast in is what you trust in. Whatever I boast in is what I trust in. 13th verse again. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so we see what these enemies of the gospel boast in. They boast in man's effort. They boast in man's works. They boast in man's goodness, the flesh, all that is man-made. And that ultimately is what they are trusting in. But look at what Paul goes on to say in the 14th verse. But be it far from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Whatever we boast in is what we trust in. Interesting little question. Profitable to answer it once in a while. Do I harbor, do I harbor a deep sense of satisfaction when I compare myself to others? Do I harbor a deep sense of satisfaction? When I compare myself to others, if I do, I have just identified what I boast in. And if I have just identified what I boast in, I have just named what I really trust in when it comes to my standing before God. It's the Pharisee of old, isn't it? He went up to the temple and prayed, I thank you, God. He's thinking vertically. I horizontally, I thank you, God, I am not like other men. The vertical, I thank you, God. The horizontal, I am not like other men. I do this. I do that. And I most certainly am not like that sinner over there. If that is the way I think, I am revealing what I boast in. And I am therefore revealing what I trust in for salvation. Oh, to take to heart Paul's words, far be it, 14th verse, from me to boast, to revel, to exalt, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he acknowledging? 
He is acknowledging that he is nothing outside of Christ. When we boast in the cross, we are saying that Christ does it all. We are saying that he takes our sins. He achieves righteousness in his obedience. And we are affirming that we are passive. And we are affirming that all we have done is believe. That belief has no merit because all it is is the stretching out of the hand to receive all that God has done in Christ Jesus. That's what we exult in, revel in, rejoice in, and boast in. Because that is what we are trusting in. That's number three. Whatever you boast in is what you trust in. Number four, lasting impressions. When we boast in the cross, we're dead to the world. We read it already. Another time for emphasis won't hurt. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what does Paul mean by that? I think he is his own best commentator. Listen to what he writes to the church of Philippi. Whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In comparison to Christ, in comparison to knowing Christ, in comparison to being knit together with Christ through faith, all other things fade in comparison. They are but dung in the sight of the Apostle Paul. Oh, when we boast in the cross, we are dead to the world. I stated this some weeks ago, some months ago. I think it was in the context of Galatians 2. Just flip back there for a moment with me. Because this is the first instance when Paul raises this idea of crucifixion. That yes, Christ was crucified by identifying with him through faith. We've been crucified with him. And he states in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Based on that verse, based on this verse, the 14th verse in chapter 6, here is the key to the Christian life. Are you ready? Here is the key. Number one, we believe that Christ was crucified for us. We get that. We understand it. That Christ upon the cross is a substitutionary sacrifice. Christ taking our place, our sin imputed to him, the wrath of God falling upon him. I understand that. Very good. We believe that Christ was crucified for us. Here's the second key to the Christian life. We believe that we have been crucified with Christ. That because from the moment I believed and put my trust in Christ, uh, God reckoned me to be one with the Lord Jesus. And therefore, God imputes to me, counts to me, reckons to me the crucifixion of Christ. It is as if I were on Calvary's cross. I wasn't there. Christ was there, but I'm one with him. Therefore, in God's reckoning, I was there. Oh, the key to the Christian life. Believing, yes, Christ was crucified for me. Believing, secondly, that I have been crucified with Christ. Thirdly, seeing myself 
daily, hanging on the cross. I'm not asking us to visualize that. I'm asking us to understand it, to recognize it, to grasp it. My friend, if you're a Christian, you're a dead man walking. You're a dead man walking. You died at Calvary's cross, died with the Lord Jesus. And to see the flesh, all that we were in Adam, all that we were before God saved us, all that we were in our sinful human nature, hanging upon the cross daily. And then the fourth key to the Christian life is simply this. It's living accordingly. Just living like it. Christ died for me. I died with Christ. I see myself hanging on the cross. Guess what I'm going to do today? I'm going to act like it. I'm going to act like it. I'm dead. I'm going to consider myself, as Paul says in Romans 6, dead to my sins. I'm going to consider myself dead to temptation. And going back to our text, the 14th verse of chapter 6, I'm going to consider myself dead to the world. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It no longer controls me. It no longer allures me. I now think an entirely different way from the world. Who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? What do I want? What do I value? I do not answer those questions on the basis of the world. The world's dead to me. I answer those questions on the basis of the one to whom I am united, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he has dictated, outlined for me in his word. Oh, we boast in the cross, and when we do, we are acknowledging we are dead to the world. Here's the fifth lasting impression. Because of the gospel, we're a new creation. Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. He said the same thing back in chapter 5, verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He's simply repeating himself here. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Here's what counts. But a new creation. Oh, for us to understand and, and live, and make, that this would be real in our lives, to understand Christ's crucifixion upon the cross, resurrection, we often think, okay, in terms of what it means for us as individuals. Amen and praise the Lord. Oh, my friends, the cosmic significance of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, it inaugurated a new creation. You know what the old creation is. You can go back and read the first two, three chapters of the book of Genesis, and you see the old creation. And that old creation in its fallen state, the present age, as the Bible describes it, continued ever since the fall and continues right to the present and will continue until Christ comes again. But at his first advent, by virtue of his death, by virtue of his resurrection and his exaltation, at God's right hand, he inaugurated a new creation. When you as a Christian, I as a Christian, believed in the Lord Jesus and became one with him, guess what we became part of? That new creation. Yes, here we live right now in this present age. And we live in very difficult times. And there is such tension in our lives because this is a fallen world. And such tension because although we live in this present age, a scarred, marred, fallen world. Terrible evidence of this this past week, haven't we? You read the headlines. 
terrible evidence of the world in which we live and the present age in which we find ourselves and the heinousness of sin when, the, when man's evil is unbridled, uncontrolled, the extent to which man can go and the things that man can do are absolutely inconceivable. Pick up the newspaper, we see it all the time. Oh, and the tension of being stuck in this present age, knowing I belong to the age to come. I'm living in this old creation, causing me all sorts of problems. I get illness, I have bereavement, I have sorrow, abandonment, afflictions, troubles, trials, and everything that's going on, and the pain and the sorrow. I just wish it would all go away. It's all going to go away. But in the meantime, here we are, Christians in the present age, but we don't belong to the present age. We belong to the age to come. Christians stuck in the old creation, but we're actually part of the new creation, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I hope this resonates you with my friend. What have you been called to? You've been called to live in this present age, however unpleasant it might be, but you're to live like one who belongs to the age to come. What does that mean? You've got the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We've received the Holy Spirit. And now we are to walk by the Holy Spirit and keep in step with the Holy Spirit and manifest the fruit, Paul said in the fifth chapter, of the Holy Spirit. We are to be conformed in the likeness of the head of this new creation. It is Christ Jesus. Oh, I pray that is a lasting impression on your life. I'll go so far as to say, Christian, you can't make sense of what, why you're here, what you're doing, unless we grasp that. Our identity, who we are, and God's purpose for us now, and how this will all end and culminate then at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the sixth lasting impression. The gospel is the rule by which we live. 16th verse. And as for all who walk, very interesting. I think so. Back to chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk. Same word in the Greek. How did I translate it when we were back there in the fifth chapter? Let us keep in step. If we live by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Paul is now more or less saying the same thing. As for all who keep in step with this rule. What rule? The gospel. What it means to be part of the new creation in Christ Jesus. We keep in step with the spirit. We keep in step with the gospel. And what is the result? The result is peace. Peace in the present. Even in the midst of a tumultuous world. And mercy in the future. Oh, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Is my conduct, the life I'm living right now in this age, belonging to the age to come, living in the old creation, belonging to the new creation, knit together with Christ, living by the Holy Spirit, now keeping in step with the gospel, does my life, does my conduct, reflect one who is keeping in step with the gospel. 
Good question. Is our relationship with our spouse in step with the gospel? Is our reaction to stress and conflict and trouble and difficulty in step with the gospel? Is our attitude toward those who aren't like us in step with the gospel? Is our work ethic at school, at the office, at the factory, wherever, is our work ethic in step with the gospel? Is our handling of money in step with the gospel? Is our TV watching in step with the gospel? Is our approach to recreation in step with the gospel. You can go on and on and on and on. All of life, we walk by this rule, the gospel. Again, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That, my friend, is the comprehensive call of the gospel. It is an entire life lived for Jesus Christ. And here's the seventh, final, lasting impression. The most controversial, wouldn't you know it? Keep it till the end. Because of the gospel, we're the true Israel of God. Because of the gospel, we, Christians, are the true Israel of God. Again, verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I would suggest to you that in that statement, you have the entire epistle. That has been Paul's main point. He's been working up to it. No wonder he took that reed pen and is writing in big letters that as Christians, those who walk by this rule, part of the new creation, we are the Israel of God. How scandalous it, how scandalous it must have been to his audience that you have this church, this mixture of Jews and Gentiles professing Christians, uh, he, he had explained to them when he, while he was with them, the old covenant, it's gone. Uh, in the body of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Uh, it doesn't matter. That old covenant is gone. And then all of a sudden, these Jews show up in the church and said, not, not, not so fast. We're not even sure Paul's a real apostle, and he certainly isn't preaching the full gospel. No, you need to go back and live under that old covenant. You need to go back and, and, and devote yourself, commit yourself uh, to the Mosaic Covenant. And, and now for Paul to argue in this epistle, basically from beginning to end, that look, no, uh, the, the promise that was given to Abraham, the fulfillment of that promise is a person. And the person is the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of the land, the promise of an eternal blessing, the promise of a king, all of those promises, I will be your God, you will be my people. All of those promises find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are Christ's, therefore Paul says back in the third chapter, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Because Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, therefore he inherits all of the blessings associated with the Abrahamic covenant. Well, I'm now one with Christ, which means what? I inherit all of the blessings and the promises associated with the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, as Christians, we will inherit a renewed body and soul. Yes, continuity and discontinuity. Yes, there will be sim similarities, and yes, there will be such differences. 
Oh, as Christians, we will inherit a renewed heaven and earth. And above all else, as Christians, we inherit a glorious God. A God who is now our Father. And that was the summation. That was the principal promise of the Abrahamic covenant. I will be a God to you, your God, and you shall be my people. Here's stability in the midst of financial woes, health problems, broken relationships. Here's strength for enduring difficulty, trust for facing uncertainty, and peace for overcoming anxiety. Here is assurance that God welcomes me, a penitent sinner, because of Christ, an all-sufficient Savior. Seven lasting impressions. And my friend, if you are not a believer, and you've listened to this, some of it has made sense, some of it hasn't made too much sense, I have been addressing God's people by and large for the most part this day. If you are not a believer, oh, that 14th verse, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, consider the cross of Christ. What what was going on there? What really happened, transpired? As the Lord Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross, it was not God declaring how special you are. In the first instance, it wasn't even God declaring how much he loves you. In the first instance, it was declaring what a terrible sinner you are. What a terrible, vile sinner I am. And if ever I am going to enjoy peace with God, it will be through the atoning work of Christ, whereby he became sin for me and bore the wrath of an angry God. Oh, and coming to God now through this mediator, Jesus Christ, oh, I do discover I'm loved. I do discover great mercy and great grace. I discover peace with the living God. Oh, as the hymn writer put it, again, my friend, if you're an unbeliever, hear these words. As the hymn writer penned it, was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. I pray you'll see it today. I'll pray you see the glory of God in the face of Christ and what it means to be reconciled to your creator, your king, and your judge through this one means of salvation that he himself has provided, this way of salvation that he has opened through the cross of Christ, whereby today as a Christian I stand before you. I have no other boast. I have no other claim. I have no other cause for joy and rejoicing and exaltation Accept the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father. May Christ indeed be sweet to us this day. Sweet to the believer as we recall what it means to be numbered among your people and to know sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life. 
and even sweet to the unbeliever, while initially it might be a cause of great dread. I pray that any unbelievers might come to see the full sufficiency of Christ's atoning sacrifice and come confessing their sin and come claiming Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray it for your glory. We pray it for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. And we ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.